Hey there, welcome to the show. Well, what did everybody think of the election? You know what, I gotta start off this, and I know everybody's saying, okay, Todd, you know, enough's enough, you know, we wanna let it die, yes, and it should, because that was the end result. I mean, I think it was just, you know, an absolute uh, nothing burger. And thank you for spending over $600 million of our tax dollars. And ultimately, in the end, you know what? I think um, hopefully it's business as usual in the world of real estate. A couple of things I'm going to talk about today. Um, I've got some uh, great guests joining me. Uh, Dave Butler from BM Select. He's going to be with me shortly. I also have Richard Lyle joining me. He's president of ResCon, the Residential Construction Council of Ontario, and uh, we're going to talk about what the builders are dealing with right now. And, you know, is there some red tape that we can get rid of? And I've got Greg Bennell. Yeah, he's no stranger here. Uh, BNN uh, Bloomberg is uh, Greg's uh, place of work. But as you know, he joins me each, uh, each month on our Real Estate Talk Triangle. So going to have Greg weigh in on some of the results of the election. Now, again, I'm not going to beat this dead horse. I mean, it was a dead horse even before the election started, but... You know, we did see a lot of promises come through and, uh, you know, the real question is, is what is actually going to happen? You know, are, uh, is the Liberal government actually going to do some of the things I've said? You know, we haven't seen them do it in the past, but who knows? Maybe they've turned over a new leaf and hopefully uh, we may see some results in the world of real estate. Speaking of the world of real estate, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in to our webinar this past week, our simple real estate investment webinar. And great to see how many, I think we had several hundred join us. And of course, we've got our new release that's uh, just kind of finishing up uh, out in London. You can buy a one bedroom, 750 square foot unit for only 269,000, guess what? You also get guaranteed rent. You never have any tenant interaction. And we just had some appraisals done on these units and they actually came in over 295. So, you know, instant equity on some of these properties, but most importantly, you have positive cash flow and you never have to worry about your tenant. We guarantee the rent. And we've been doing this for over 12 years. So again, go to thesimpleinvestor.com and don't forget to follow me on Instagram. The Simple Investor One. I try to keep people up to date on some of the newsworthy stories that are out there in the world of real estate. But as I had mentioned at the very beginning, joining me, no stranger to the show, Dave Butler from BM Select Butler Mortgage. And hey, Dave, what did you think of the election? You're going right there, right off the bat, eh? Yeah, well, no, I think, uh, no introduction, Dave. We're just going to put this thing to bed, you know, because I've been wanting to talk to you all week, you know, after what I would call a, a catastrophe. We could have spent $600 million a lot better way to end up with the same place that we started. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's funny when you look at some of these promises and uh, with regards to how these governments would look at fixing housing and they're talking about, you know, investing billions of dollars to help it. Uh, but yet we just threw out uh, 60% of a billion dollars on something that did absolutely nothing for our country. So um, that that's obviously, you know, where I stand. I mean, uh, I feel like that money could have been better spent to help Canadians uh, in many other ways. Yeah. So here's the thing. So, we, you know, part of the campaign pr uh, promises, you and I talked about it the other week, you know, all the all the diatribe that was floating around. And, and you know, quite frankly, I, I really think it made grass grow better. 
you know, that's what I think they were actually shoveling. So here's the thing. If we take a look at the numbers and we start talking about what is real, what is not real, you know, one of the things that they're now, the, the Liberal government's proposing is, you know, they're going to try to give some tax breaks and they're going to try to, you know, create, you know, the ability for people to, to create these ta- these accounts to be able to, you know, again, there, there, there's all these minute little adjustments being done. You and I talked about that, the idea of the partnership, you know, two years ago when they had the other election and they threw the Hail Mary of saying CMHC will be your partner. The government will be your partner in your home, 10%. I remember asking you, you know, for the next 18 months, did anybody, you know, take them up on it? And virtually throughout the entire industry, nobody took them up on it. How do they think that promising these tiny little breaks are going to make things more affordable? Um, interesting. Seems like it was a lot of theater. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, you and I, uh, are always going to be on the same page on this and that, you know, the, the Canadian real estate problem has nothing to do with trying to add these little, little bitty programs. This is a, this is a macro problem and this is a supply problem and they should be allocating as many resources as possible to get the supply there. The supply will fix what some call a pricing issue. Um, so if the government really wants to really wants to dig their heels in and do something right, they would be lessening the red tape on builders um, and making you know making it aff- effectively more affordable by allowing there to be more supply. But I think none of you know, unfortunately, none of the things that I've seen uh, that the gov you know uh, that the liberal government is said they would do with housing really was going down that angle. As you and I know, we, we you know, I, I've read it and I know you've read it, but a lot of these things were little knickknack things that are just skirting the issue. They're not actually getting to the heart of it. Well, here's the other thing is the federal government actually doesn't have a lot to do with building in our own backyard. You know, we talk about municipalities, we talk about provinces, you know, maybe they can turn around and, and bribe province by saying, yeah, we're going to give you a, a you know, billion dollar tax break or, or here's a, here's a billion dollars just to, you know, change the, the equation. But quite frankly, you know, them weighing into it and, and a little bit of this might be, you know, some voter education as well. The federal government, unless they're throwing money at the problem, they don't, they're not on the ground with everybody. And this is the thing, you know, Toronto housing problem is a Toronto housing problem. It does extend to the province, but it doesn't extend federally unless we keep talking about the fact that federal government's opening up the borders and telling us, hey, listen, let's bring another 400,000, you know, people into the country who are going to probably in most cases rent right out of the gate which is again, creating more of a housing problem. Yeah. I mean, and it goes, it goes to our point and the point that you've been, you know, trying to get out there for many, 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 many years. Um, you know, and this is more on the investment side of things is that Canadian real estate is an investment. Um, you know, if the governments are going to run things this way, then it leads to where we're at and you have to choose which side of the coin you want to be on. And in this case, it's, I want to be on the side of the coin where there will be that value. If you're going to create um, an environment like this, then what it's led to, and as you and I have talked about throughout the years, there's more, I believe, you know, uh, I would call them retail real estate investors, people like you and I buying rental properties uh, because of the way that the government has set this up. It's a no brainer. If you're looking to attain wealth, then Canadian real estate is obviously the place to go based on the way the governments are, are acting. One of the things that we hear a lot of, and I know you hear it as well, is the fact that 
you know, so many people are upset because they can't afford their first home. Because if we take a look at Toronto prices, if you're looking at a brand new condo, if people are purchasing, you know, starting at 700000 But Dave, one of the things that I try to encourage people, you know, we just had our webinar uh, this past week, you know, lo- you know, we had hundreds of people attend, which is always, you know, wonderful to have. But one of the things we try to tell people is that, look, you may decide to rent yourself, but it doesn't mean you can't own investment real estate. You know, like real estate, a lot of people just, you know, say, okay, they they look at it singularly saying it's my primary residence. You know, if I can't have a primary, you know, resident real estate, then I'm not going to own real estate. But that in, in, in some ways I think is nonsensical because... You can own investment, uh, an investment piece, you know, down the road, you can refinance. Maybe that's going to help you with your down payment. But as you said, you know, we always will encourage people to turn around and own some kind of real estate. Investment real estate, I think, is definitely an answer to a lot of these situations in the future. Oh, you're 100% right. And I mean, to your point, um, I would say that we've worked with more people in the last two years in terms of investors that were buying properties that didn't actually own their owner-occupied home. Now, this is obviously coming from a level of where it was almost never that we would see that situation. And now it does seem like those that are renting are figuring out that, hey, there's still a way for me to purchase real estate in Canada and be an investor. Maybe I don't, I'm not going to go buy the $800,000 home that I would typically live in, let's say in Mississauga as an example, but that's not stopping someone from still renting the home that they're currently living in and going and buying a much cheaper home in Thunder Bay and renting it out. I mean, you know, that's just an example, but we've seen this more and more. And it's actually a really good point that you bring up. Well, here's the thing, you know, everybody should, you know, in my opinion, should own some form of real estate. Now, again, since we didn't get a a mandate out of the, the liberal government being a majority, you know, right now, I think the idea of capital gains on primary residents, that's probably been cooled. Okay, and that's that's a positive thing. But we're taking a look at foreign ownership even. And they want and, and will it be interesting to see if they follow up with their promise where they're going to eliminate foreign ownership for foreign buyers for the next two years, unless they're investing in purpose-built rentals. But then my question will be this, who is going to build it? <laughs> because if you're not going to give it to the private sector to build, then it, the government can't build it. They, I mean, they can't build a shoebox. So what are they going to do? Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. I think you and I've discussed it before. The, 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 we, this, is, this really is a supply issue. I mean, it always has been. And the supply issue is going to drive all kinds of macro micro factors um, that we are going to see. And with regards to the foreign, foreign buyers, um, to me, uh, I think obviously they need to address this, um, but is addressing it in the way that they're, they're, they're saying they will, is it the right way? I mean, I think you and I know the answer to that. And I, I think again, they need to focus more issue and time on supply. Yeah. Excellent. Listen, Dave, always a pleasure having you on the show. What's the best way for our listeners to reach you? Thanks, Todd. They can get a hold of us at our office, 905-569-8326, or you can shoot us an email. Our email address is info at bmselect.ca. Well, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, folks, when I come back, I've got Richard Lyle joining me. He is the president of ResCon, the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. So stay with, with me. We'll be right back after this. So joining me now is Richard Lyle, and he is president of ResCon. That's the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. And Richard, welcome to the show. 
Thank you for having me on. Maybe you can tell our listeners uh, actually what the Residential Construction Council of Ontario is and who you represent. So we represent approximately 200 of the larger uh, builder developers in Ontario, and we're basically engaged in any issues related to the actual construction of buildings you know, the activity that goes on on job sites and all the elements that surround that. When somebody's seeing, let's say, one of the towers going in the air in Toronto, then you would have some kind of influence there. Is that right? Yeah, we we get involved in the relative, you know, the many issues that are involved, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, the material supplies and logistics and technical standards, building code issues, health and safety, uh, labor relations, um, climate change, uh, and uh, issues that affect builders and developers as a group uh, uh, related to the regulatory process. So those are the kinds of issues that we get involved in. And, uh, and of course, uh, you know, our industry is uh, a leader in the world uh, in terms of our quality and ability to produce. I think you've probably seen the reports about you know, for example, how many tower cranes there are in Toronto. I think we've got more tower cranes up than the next three largest cities in North America. So, you know, we're, uh, it's a very happening industry and uh, we've got many issues to contend with, especially now with COVID and the housing supply crisis. Well, I'm glad you brought up the housing supply crisis because, you know, um, and, and I, I hope that you're okay talking about the recent election, which was a complete dud, but the candidates promising the number, yeah, the number of units. I I was floored by it because, you know, you you I'm sure you know are aware that you know we do have a shortage of of properties and the, the amount of red tape. And you and I are going to talk about red tape in a second. But some of the numbers yep. that came out of those election platforms, I was absolutely floored with. I mean, they can barely they can barely make a thousand units themselves. And here they're promising half a million to a million to a million four. I, I, it was staggering, and you know one of the one of the yes. big deciding factors they people have said was the housing crisis. You know here that we have in Canada, but you know more specifically in Ontario. And so for yourself, I mean you're on the ground. You you are working with the people that are creating these you know these units, these roofs over people's heads. What did you think of this campaign? Let me first say this, that housing is a quite a beguiling industry. It's, it's incredibly complicated, and it's probably the most regulated industry uh, going. You've got literally uh, dozens of contractors, uh, tens of thousands of workers. You've got thousands of different kinds of materials. You've got a regulatory process that uh, includes, uh, we counted 45 different government agencies and ministries and so on that have their finger in the approvals process. And so it's, it's, it's really challenging. Uh, the election was great in the sense that I was very pleased to see that housing received the attention that it did. Unfortunately, and you know, many people and certainly the public don't realize this, is that the, the federal government has certain levers that it can apply to producing housing, but it, you know, without alignment with the, at the provincial level, the regional level, and the municipal level, and the, and the various players there in the process, they're really not going to achieve what they uh, purport to want to do. And then some of the numbers were, you know, more or less a fiction, 
because there's no way you can sort of turn around and produce uh, hundreds of thousands of units, much less a million units, within a three or four year period. It's just not it's not reality. And uh, but I I don't think they were intentionally misleading the public or were uh, um, um, not being truthful about it. You know that kind of thing. I think it's just that just spoke to the fact that. They really don't understand the industry, and they were uh, they were kind of uh, making up policies on the fly. Now, having said that, uh, I'm glad it, again that it has received that level of attention because it needs to receive that level of attention. We do have a housing crisis. Uh, we're the lowest amongst the OECD countries in how many units of housing we have per 1,000 people in Canada. Uh, we rank 64th in the world in dealing with construction permitting, uh, and our supply chain is frankly a mess. And often projects that uh, get tied up literally for years for no good reason other than it just gets gummed up in red tape or some silly thing because the you know the rules aren't sufficiently clear to. Uh, uh, allow uh, producers of housing, if I can put, if I can call them that, rather than builders, to get ahead and get the job done. Uh, and then, of course, we have a whole range of other problems, uh, uh, many of which I'm very proud of the fact the way the industry dealt with COVID. You know, we got out first of any industry on developing COVID protocols and so on and so forth because. You know, we recognize that housing is a need. It's not a want. It's not something that's optional in life. You need shelter. And uh, we were already backlogged and we were already delayed before COVID. So a shutdown would have been, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, the situation's bad enough now. It would have been a complete disaster had we actually shut down industry. And we're grateful that the government there, the provincial government, understood that issue and had enough confidence in us to be able to operate uh, uh, safely, and I think we've uh, we've proven that we uh, could and did. Um, so, but going forward, we really need to get, somehow get the levels of government aligned and deal with the barriers to the supply of housing. You know, if you think of housing like in a supply chain configuration or format. Uh, there's literally, uh, there's so many elements to that. And if you have specific elements in that supply chain where there's no transparency or accountability or things just get delayed, then it's a mess. And that's exactly what we have. I mean, there's no reason, no good reason why we can't fix the market disequilibrium in housing and start to match demand with supply. And indeed, we have to. I mean, look at the immigration numbers. I mean, we can't build for our existing population enough housing. How the heck are we going to build it for, uh, you know, immigrants coming to Canada? And then you look at the problem with who are the immigrants? Well, you know, very few of them actually are arriving in Canada that actually have uh, skilled building trades, knowledge and experience. And, um, and so that's just not sustainable in any meaningful way. And, of course, that in turn will affect the recovery, any kind of recovery. Because if we can't build enough housing for people, then you can, you know, well, you can just imagine what's going to happen with recovery. And, you know, and then, the, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, the, the rate of the cost of housing and the taxes related to housing and levies, 
I mean, on a million dollar house now, you're looking at about $250,000 in taxes and levies, which are by far the highest in North America. In fact, there's nothing that really compares to it in any meaningful way. And, and that's happened because of the bizarre way that uh, governments get revenues and how they're managed and so on and so forth. But, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's uh, very disturbing, uh, very, uh, 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 you know, it's almost dangerous situation, but it can be fixed. In Ontario alone, we know that will attract the majority of the people immigrating into Canada. So one of the things, though, Richard, is, you know, we have a, we're going to have a, sh- a huge shortage of rental properties. And this is one of the things that I think that we are going to have to address more and more, because a lot of times when we see new immigrants come in, they are more renters than yep. they are buyers right out of the gate. And so this is, I think, a huge concern that we should be looking at as far as our, our, our rental inventory, not just you know, for people that are trying to buy their first home. Um, Richard, you know what, we're going to go to a quick break, but I'd like you to stay put because I'd like to be able to talk to you a little bit more about how we're going to solve some of these situations. So, uh, folks, I've got Richard Lyle joining me right now. He's the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. He is the president. And when we come back, we'll have more. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. My guest right now is Richard Lyle, and he is the president of ResCon, and that's the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. Richard, just before the break, you and I were having a discussion about, uh, you know, the shortage of inventory that we are currently looking at. You know, it was interesting, though, because you made it you made a point saying that in, in North America, we've got the most cranes. We have the slowest process of building. We have the least amount of roofs over our heads. It's, it, it, I'm not going to say it sounds like a contradiction, but you know, and, and we can't build fast enough. And so I thought I'd ask you this question because a lot of people just think, you know, inventory pops up, but you know, in each, let's just take your typical year, how many um, units can be constructed right now when we're talking about construction and what we've got going on? Yeah, let me put it to you this way. I mean, we're pretty much uh, maxed out right now on what we can actually produce right now. And, of course, I don't have to tell you that we do have supply chain issues like many other industries and, uh, and, and the like. Now, one of the things I always like to say that if the demand on the industry increases, uh, then it's for the industry to figure that out. And we can. We're a very innovative industry. We're looking at modular and panelized housing and off-site construction methodologies and those are really they're already happening and that will continue to grow rapidly i think you may have seen that one project in toronto where they did an apartment building uh with modular but i want to speak about something that's really critical and if you look at if you compare canada with the united states for example or at least you know the central ontario area in particular uh we don't produce anywhere near uh, or in any way sufficient amounts of rental housing. And rental housing is quite different from condos. Uh, condos are an ownership uh, proposition, and we do build lots of condos that are then rented, but it's not the same thing. And uh, we don't. And, and the reason why rental is important because it actually facilitates, uh, you know, labor mobility. The, you know, the movement of skilled peoples because, you know, you can go from one area to another and at least know well if they've got a vibrant rental housing market there, I'll probably be able to get a place to live. The problem with rental, and some people might, and it's good to look at history, some people might remember about the rental housing boom we had back in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, when you travel around the GTA and you see a lot of these older apartment buildings, I mean, they're rock solid, uh, uh, and there's 
thousands and thousands of them, and we built those then. But then what happened was there was, and it was it was an act of uh, of misguided political expediency, where rather than deal with uh, supply issues, there was an intervention to deal with uh, 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 price controls and things like that. Uh, and uh, the demand side of the equation, and effectively what happened was the rental housing development industry was pretty much shot in the head. I think you're doing a polite dance yeah. right now. We could talk about the Ray government throwing yeah. in rent control in 88. It actually predated that. This happened uh, around the late 70s, early 80s, uh, really in the sort of early mid-80s where the governments backed out of not only did they throw on the rent controls in the 70s, but then they kind of withdrew from production in the early 80s. And then we really didn't have uh, social housing coming on stream to the extent we needed. And we certainly no longer had a rental uh, apartment development industry. Uh, and it was a disaster. Now, you know, the condo industry took over from there. But again, it's, it's not really the same thing in economic terms. And uh, we really need to find our way back to that. But, you know, the, the, you know, our market is fundamentally dysfunctional. Like, we do a great job in building high-rise condos, and that is laudable, and it's commendable to the industry. But we're not producing the miss, what we call the missing middle, you know, those sort of 12-story, sort of 8- to 12-story buildings along main streets and avenues because of zoning problems and approvals problems. We just can't get it done. I mean, it's been identified as a need. And then if you look at low-rise housing, well, I can tell you 15 years ago, two-thirds of the housing that we built was in a low-rise format. Uh, fast forward to today, two-thirds of the housing is a high-rise format. And the big change there is, well, the unit numbers are basically same, the same between now and 15 years ago. The square footage is different because condos are smaller than housing. So houses, so we're actually, or low-rise housing. So we're actually building less housing on top of everything else uh, than we, on a square footage basis than we did 15 years ago. But many don't realize that. I've had people say, oh, well, you're building the same amount of units. And I said, yeah, but they're not the same units. And then we have situations where, you know, the approvals process has just gotten longer and longer and there are elements within that approvals process where there's no accountability or transparency or very little. And then we had a situation which was kind of wonderful in a way. We said, okay, we're going to stop urban sprawl. Well, the trade-off to that is we have to have more density. But when they introduced all these, uh, you know, the growth plan and everything else like that, they said, okay, you're going to stop urban sprawl now. But uh, we're going to give the municipality some time to change their official plans and change their zoning to allow for higher densities and so on and so forth. Well, that really never happened. So we got left with the same old system, the same old gummed up approvals process that's actually gotten worse. And at the same time, you know, we've had massive amounts of land removed from the equation that we can't touch. And, you know, look, we get climate change, uh, no argument there and so on. But it was uh, it was fast and loose, and again, it was politically expedient at the time when that happened. You know, the government of the day wanted to look good, wanted to look green, wanted to get the you know the kudos from that, and people loved it because they didn't realize exactly what the proposition was and the trade-off was. And now the you know the mess that we have is even worse, and the 
the the the lists and the the cost of housing has gone up and up and up, uh, and we're at a point now where the people that work in service industries can't live really in Toronto or even close to it really, uh, and if they are, what they're living in is something that would probably horrify a lot of people if they actually saw some of these substandard occupancies. And, you know, and we've said to government, look, the more you drive up the cost of housing, the more you're going to push families and, 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 and the working poor into really third world housing conditions, you know, can, uh, uh, um, where you've got overcrowding and it's just dangerous, but they don't really get that. And one of the problems there, I think, is that a lot of the people that have been making the decisions are, are, are Gen Xers and, and baby boomers. And, you know, they've got their house, thank you very much. And they don't really get this. And then it really blows me away when I see people saying, well, you know, this is young people not working hard enough and they're not saving enough money or whatever else like that. Well, if you adjust the cost of housing to inflation over time, it just blows everything else out of the water. So, and there's no need for it. There's no need for it. If we modernize our zoning and site plan approvals processes, we digitize and modernize the approvals process where, where you can bake in accountability and transparency and you make certain tax adjustments that are only fair, uh, we can fix this problem and we can find market equilibrium again uh, with respect to housing. Wow. And I was, one last thing. I mean, we're looking at, at, at uh, organizing a housing supply summit on this because we've got to, somebody's got to get the various levels of government and agencies together and the various thought leaders on this because uh, we, we have to solve this problem or, you know, the future of our region is by no means guaranteed. Right. You know, and, uh, and, and the quality of life, especially for young people, especially for young families. I mean, just look at our, uh, you know, our birth rates are falling. Why? Well, who'd have a family if, you, if, <laughs> you know, if you're going to be basically choked to death, right? Well, listen, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And, you know, it's a real eye-opener, obviously, of, you know, what the industry faces on a regular basis. So once again, I appreciate you coming on the show today, Richard. Cheers. Folks, that was Richard Lyle, president of ResCon, the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. And we'll be right back after this. And welcome back. So joining me next, no stranger to the show. In fact, he's one of my panelists coming up in the next week uh, is on the Real Estate Talk Triangle, Greg Benell. He, that's right, host at BNN Bloomberg. He is a former business editor and Queen's Park Bureau Chief of the Canadian Press. And Greg really does focus on things such as the uh, economic policy makers, but also with real estate. And Greg, you know what? I've just been, you know, waiting to get you on the show <laughs> because, you know, we went through this election and I got to tell you, what a big zero. And I want to get your take on, you know, this whole thing. Yeah, we're right back where we started before all this in terms of a liberal minority government. Uh, but at the same time, we did have a campaign where there was a lot of promises made. I mean, about a wide variety of things. But obviously, when it came to housing, there was no shortage of stuff there either from the liberals or the NDP, which might be the party that has to support them through their next minority mandate. They had a few ideas about the market. And there's so much here. Uh, but I, I tried to, to, you know, put it in my head. Uh, how am I going to organize this? So it's like there's a bucket that's about 
affordability, at least what they call what they're going to do to try to bring affordability to home buyers. And then another bucket about supply. But in the affordability bucket, I actually had John Pasalas of Velocity on after the election. And he said afterwards he didn't mean to. But when I said to him, was there anything on that platform, John? Do you think we'll bring affordability to the market? And he laughed. The first thing out of his mouth was laughter on live TV. And he said, I didn't mean to laugh, but no, because we started going through them, right? Whether it's uh, doubling the first time home buyer's tax credit, increasing the, the cutoff for uh, mortgage insurance to 1.25 million, these home savings accounts. He said, all of that is going to bring more demand into the market. Yes, it might. It's all aimed at helping that first time buyer get in. But at the same time, then you're bringing more people in. So then the other bucket is the supply bucket. And that's, you know, big numbers, right? 1.4 million homes over the next four years to build, preserve, or repair. But if you pull the trigger on the other programs first and say, here's, we're going to help you get in the market, but the supply is not there to meet that new demand, then you're going to be into trouble. So John basically surmised it by saying, yeah, no, I think these will actually push prices higher rather than either keep them the status quo or even bring them down, which, of course, we know that governments don't want to do because that make people very angry. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, the Liberal governments are, uh, it has done in the past is a lot of big goose egg zeros. And, you know, you and I even talked about this back in 2019 when they threw out the idea that CMHC could partner with some of these first-time home buyers. You know, they'll throw the 10% cash their way. They're going to partner up. You know, I think the end result of that was almost a zero. I think maybe they got 100 people in Canada that actually bit. <laughs> and you know, the number was so low, Greg, that, you know, when, when they throw out these programs, I don't think they move the needle at all. In fact, as you said, I think, you know, if anything, you know, some of the stuff will throw a little bit of, you know, gas on some of the fire. And, you know, affordability, I don't think is going to be addressed in thousands, like, you know, 5,000, 2,000, 10,000, you know, that's not affordability. That's not going to change the landscape right now. You know, if, if you're looking at affordability and, and again, what is deemed affordable? Like, you know, this is the question I have to ask people is that, you know, people want to turn around and watch real estate drop back down to, you know, for a condo in Toronto for 250,000. Well, it's just not going to happen, you know, supply and demand. So, you know, what What do we do to make things affordable? I, I, I don't know. You know, we can sit there and say, well, we'll bring more inventory. But then we've got the backup that we've got, you know, new immigrants coming, the majority will come into Ontario. And all of a sudden now we've got this huge, you know, group of people that, you know, A, people want to buy properties and B, we need rentals. Yeah, it becomes pretty clear on that front too. That And that's been a discussion we've been having for a couple of years and policymakers saying maybe not everyone needs to own a home, but then you say, well, thank you very much for that. Now I need to go rent a place. And then the rents uh, have been uh, quite high as well. So you, you get into that part of it. And, and the rental market is an important source of that supply that everyone keeps agreeing that we need, you know, more available units. But then there was this other part of the campaign platform from the Liberals that I didn't pay careful enough attention to during the campaign itself. But uh, the day after, I was like, oh, they said something about REITs, didn't they? I mean, they're real estate investment trusts, you know, owners of big blocks of, you know, purpose-built rental apartments. And they talked about reviewing their tax treatment. They talked about making sure their rents were in line with the industry average. And I had the feeling that they were sort of saying, you know, the REITs are part of the problem and not part of the solution. So we actually had the CEO of Canadian Apartment REITs, Cap Read, on after the election. And he said, as far as the campaign went uh, and the uh, and the pledge and the platform, it was so vague that he didn't want to pick a fight at this point with the federal government. But he was a bit confused as to saying, okay, we're, we're the landlords, right? Why isn't there a discussion with us? 
about supply and what we can do and how we can be part of the solution and not part of the pro- problem. And he, he was pretty careful to stress, too, it's not only a discussion with the federal government because they can't do everything by themselves as much as it sounded good on the campaign trail. It's got to be the province. It's got to be the municipalities. These are the key voices that all need to sort of speak together. So he just said, just bring us into the conversation. Don't target us as some sort of enemy of supply when we're the, we're the landlords with the supply. You know, and one of the things that I think that they keep forgetting about is a lot of times these REITs, when they buy, you know, some of the towers, they have excess land and some of them actually in Ontario are building and adding more purpose-built rental properties in. But during the campaign, you know, the Liberals were adamant about the idea of knocking out, you know, foreign investors. And just for clarity, I just want to make sure all our listeners know, they are not creating the inventory shortage, okay? The numbers are staggeringly low right now for foreign investors. And then, of course, we've got the people saying, oh, there's money laundering. Look, you know, if there's a conspiracy theory out there, everybody's going to glom onto it. But quite frankly, that's not the one you need to glom onto. That's not the one that is creating this issue. But now the government's sitting there saying, okay, we're going to stop allowing foreign investors to buy into Canada for the next two years. But if you want to put money into purpose-built rental properties, we're going to allow it. Well, here's the thing. The government can't build. The heck, they can't even, you know, fold a box. So how are they going to turn around and create this purpose-built rental properties? Yeah, it's really got to be a municipal discussion. And that, that was clear from the Capreed CO2 as well. So if you're talking about where we can actually grow in terms of land, and this isn't a discussion to have with the federal government. This is a discussion to have on a local basis and maybe bring the province in on it as well. So we wanted all three partners. But at the same time, yeah, you, you talk about, so then you need the capital, the investment capital to build all of this. I actually saw an interesting report this week too from RBC Economics talking about the fact that we, in terms of like shovels in the ground, the housing starts, we're actually building at the strongest pace since the mid-1970s. Like, well, that's good. And then the next part of the report said, and we can expect to see this, you know, accelerated, you know, bringing to, to market of, of new homes uh, within a year. And you're like, well, that's good. And then the caveat was, but it's the smaller markets that will see the biggest boon and, you know, move in ready homes and not so much the big markets. The big markets is where we have the problem. It's not that prices haven't gone up higher in small communities when you talk about like you said right new canadians coming to this country where do they gravitate to they gravitate to toronto to montreal and to vancouver and to the big cities because that's where the jobs are so it, i read that report and i was like oh this is fantastic here here's a here's a supply uh, solution finally and then the last caveat is like but it'll be the smaller communities that have that have more supply coming and move in within the next year well, you know, and they also have more available land. So, you know, it's yeah, a little bit yeah. easier for them to to build. And heck, if we take a look at some of the secondary markets, then we can look at stronger employment in those areas, you know, work on supply chains, things like that. Um, let's talk about the Bank of Canada for a second. You know, we keep getting reports that they are not moving anywhere right now with interest rates. You know, we're going through a whole lot of different things here in the country you know, not thank to any government in, in place. But do you see the Bank of Canada staying packed? I mean, you know, we talk about fourth wave, we talk about vaccine passports, we talk about everything. We're going to watch, you know, the economy is not seeing the numbers that they were hoping for. In fact, I think the inflation rate is a little bit lower than they were hoping for. You know, can you talk to us about that? Where Where are we sitting today? Yeah, the Bank of Canada won't get off that stance that they're not prepared to, you know, move on borrowing costs into the latter part of next year. And, and that seemed aggressive at first because the U.S. Federal Reserve, which one can argue is the most powerful central bank in the world, is definitely the most influential when it comes to the markets, uh, didn't look like it was ready to go. 
until 2023. But they're shifting their tone in the Fed a little bit this week. We heard from them, and it seems that right now they're split around the table. When the U.S. Federal Reserve the committee sits around the table, they, they got a tie vote now as to whether they think they might move next year. And then the Bank of England actually seems to be worried about inflation because uh, we keep getting told by our central bank and the central bank in the states don't worry about inflation because inflation really should force their hand right if inflation keeps running hot then that should be the thing that makes them say maybe we got the borrowing costs too low the bank of england actually seems a bit concerned it might raise rates before the end of this year so it just makes you think how long can canada be that sort of outlier they keep saying no everything's cool everything's cool but as far as their communications with the public and communications to the media the bank of canada they're still on that position. We are not going to touch the cost of borrowing until the second half of next year. And then when they do, right? I mean, we're still we're at historically low levels. It goes up in increments of a quarter of a percent at a time. I don't think we're going to be in a situation the next couple of years where someone suddenly turns around and says, whoa, that's a mortgage rate now? Unless the bond market <laughs> turns on us. And that's a whole different discussion, right? Because there's only so much a central bank can do when the bond market decides to say, this is what we think money is worth. So I don't care what you're saying about your overnight rate bank in Canada. Yeah, yeah, and and one of the things, as, as you had mentioned numerous times on the show, it's not like they're going to come down with a one percent increase. You know, this is going to be a very slow moving animal. You know, a quarter point, maybe even less than that for the first, you know, first attack on the rates. And I think it'll be very slow. I think they're going to be very cautious with it. And they're going to warn us. They're going to give us all kinds of advance warning. I mean, you're seeing it. Uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve. This gets a bit deep in the weeds, but they also buy tons of bonds every month. And eventually they're going to slow the pace on that. They have been preparing the market for that for months. They're hinting, they're nudging, they're saying they're getting ready and maybe they're even closer. They're being so careful about not shocking anyone coming out of this. And our, our central banks going to do the same thing. They're going to be so careful not to shock the public, not to shock the markets after what we've been through because then you, you undo everything they did in the past year to try to support the economy. So it's going to be very gradual. Uh, you're right on that one. And they're going to give us so much warning about it too. Uh, no one's going to get caught out unless you just sort of put your fingers in your ears for the next 18 months. <laughs> Excellent. Listen, Greg, thanks so much for joining me today. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Looking forward to the Talk Triangle next week with you and uh, Tim Seriano. So uh, be well, and we'll talk to you next week. Great to be here and talk to you soon. Well, that's a wrap. And I just want to thank Greg Bennell for all his input. Um, again, he's going to be joining me next week for our Real Estate Talk Triangle. Uh, I'm going to be joined by Tim Serianos as well as the other panelists. And looking forward to having those two gentlemen. You know, it's great having the conversation with them on a monthly basis. I do want to thank my other guests. So Richard Lyle, president of ResCon, great to talk to him and kind of get his perspective for the builders and what they're dealing with on a daily basis. And Dave Butler from BM Select, Butler Mortgage. Always great to have Dave on the show. But uh, that's it, you know, it's, it's amazing how quick a hour goes by. I do want to thank Ian Grant, my producer, because he does keep it simple for me every single week. And more importantly, I want to thank you for tuning in, making us the number one real estate talk show. And of course, I will be back next Sunday as usual at noon. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater. You've been listening to Simply Real Estate right here on News Talk 1010.